from KQED. The heat is on inside the state capitol. The legislature returns. Big topics start coming into focus. And, uh, hmm, what about the role of Governor Jerry Brown? Let me let him tell you. You know, as a brooding omnipresence, I've, I stand above the fray here. Above the fray, this is the California Politics Podcast for the week ending August 21st. I'm John Myers of KQED News, along with Marisa Lagos from KQED. And our uh, friend Anthony York, um, uh, I think he's, what, now landed in the Big Apple? Did you get that message of his travel schedule? <laughs> I didn't get the actual itinerary, but um, <laughs> we miss you, Anthony. Yes, he's on the East Coast handling things there. We've got things apparently under control on the, the West Coast and lovely California. Um, three topics to look at um, in California politics and government this week. Topic one is this intense series of Uh, new clashes over climate change legislation. Topic two is how transportation advocates were rallying with the governor who, as that uh, comment makes it clear, (laughs) noncommittal. Yes. Is that charitable? Um, And then a couple of snapshots uh, for topic three of political wrangling over some bills that are in the news, um, including um, end-of-life choices uh, for the terminally ill and sniping over the California high school exit exam. That was a fun one. So we'll get to that as well as our uh, favorite political side dishes of the week. But let's let's start with climate change. I feel like there's been a lot of sniping this week, just to set the scene here a little <laughs> bit, you know? Everyone's back. They're ho- it's hot in Sacramento. People are back in town. They're a little bitter to be there, it seems. <laughs> in which case, it makes it just fun to be a reporter. And uh, climate change was one of those that the press was talking about a lot this week. You know, we, for podcast listeners, because I know all of you listen to every episode, right? Right. Um, and last week's podcast, we discussed in detail um, how Democrats in the California legislature are really, you know, what I keep saying, uh, doubling down on efforts to combat climate change in California. The biggest bill we talked about, uh, Senate Bill 305, carried by the leader of the state Senate, Kevin DeLeon of Los Angeles. But what was interesting about this week, I think it's probably the place we should start, is how DeLeon and his supporters in the environmental community spent most of the week uh, battling over a news story, a story by the Associated Press that called into question this ballot measure he helped convince voters to pass in 2012 about the environment. And, I mean, Maurice, I think we should we should set the scene here. I mean, this this issue of what Prop 39 was and what it has or hasn't done, it it, it became really one of the big topics. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that coming coming back, um, the pro time and his allies really expected to sort of be on on, you know, on their toes around SB 350, which is this pending bill. But the story hit Monday um, by the AP, a strong story, just looking at Prop 39, essentially finding that three years after this ballot measure was passed that was sort of sold as a way to create jobs and to um, fund energy-efficient projects in schools, that really only one-tenth of the promised jobs have actually been created. There haven't been any oversight meetings by the board created by this ballot measure. Um and so, and and they, I mean, defensive might be mild, right? I mean, there was a really strong pushback once it came out from the pro Tem's office, you know, and, and there's also the sort of outside stuff because this was the brainchild of both um, Kevin Dalian, but also Tom Snyder, 
Tom Steyer, a billionaire venture capitalist who's really taken a lead on on climate change and environmental issues, and who's already been in the sights of the oil industry as a target. So it kind of it hit on a number of sort of already percolating issues, right? Yeah, and I, and I think you know, I mean, the the nerve it touched. It seemed like when you hear from the environmental community was was partly based on the fact that they are having these other fights at the Capitol right now. I mean, I you know, it's interesting because like there was a lot of back and forth. There were a couple of environmentalists on Twitter who, you know, wanted to take every reporter to task who said, hey, read this story. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I think the AP did, you know, a lot of work. I, I mean, I, I understand the criticism. And, you know, and again, people will need to read the story. We can put a link in our um, in our post here. But I get the criticism that it may be too soon to draw conclusions about the effectiveness of the Prop 39 energy efficiency uh, campaigns in schools. I mean, I get it. I get that it's probably not three years worth of data because the voters passed it in 2012, but the taxes didn't take effect. I get all that. But I also think that to me, what what stuck with me in the story was the fact that what you hear in a political campaign about what you're going to get as a voter when you right. vote yes is not always as simple as the campaigns make it out to be. And the simplicity of the 39 campaign about, you know, saving money for schools and making big corporations pay. Well, the right. you know, it hasn't all panned out yet. It, it There is more that has to be done. And I think that that's where, like, the defensiveness was a little over, maybe over the top, because, you know, you know the, this is the role of a good press is to be a watchdog and to be, you know, for taxpayers and consumers to, to be there watching um, because mo- normal people don't have the time or energy to do this. Um, I think a lot of the response we saw from the pro tem and environmentalist, you know, they had an opportunity to make that case in the story. And I don't think that they necessarily did it ahead of time as well as they probably wanted to. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's always going to be caveats and that obviously three years or two and a half years of anything is not the end all and be all. But that doesn't mean we can't check in on these things. And like you said, I mean, things are promised in ballot measures and there's you know, it's always hard to really measure the effects of any policy made in the legislature or the ballot box. But there are some pretty, you know, there were some pretty specific promises made in terms of jobs and other things in this measure. Um, And, you know, I think some of the response was sort of personal attacks on the reporter, which was interesting. Um, So, yeah, it, it, it certainly hit a nerve. And, you know, I think it's just it is good, whatever whatever you think, whatever side you're on of this, for for those of us in the press to check back in on things and sort of see where they're at. Yeah, and and a couple of things come to mind with me. The first one is, is that again, if you go back and look at Prop 39, uh, we changed the way corporate taxes are levied in California. We use the money for these um, these energy efficiency programs in schools, and that part of the of of where the money goes only is is supposed to last for about five years. So, you know, yes, it's, it may be early in that effort, but it is a short time frame that uh, people have to use that money there and whether that money is well spent or not. And the other thing that was just kind of odd is that some of the critics of the way the press had done the story and the Associated Press had done the story was that they insinuated that, like, you know, the oil industry had prompted um, the reporters to do the story and that it was suspicious timing with the debate of SB 350. And, and I just, you know, respectfully say to those folks, 
I mean, we we work on stories until they're done, and then we put stories out. And I mean, you know, the fact that someone would say that there was some kind of collusion with the oil industry to put the story out now, but that pivots me to yeah. the point that I want to talk about, which is the the tension over the fight at the Capitol, because that's really kind of where this goes, right. is really palpable. And this was a an example of it where they are really down in the trenches now about this bill, this Kevin DeLeon bill, SB 350, which would do three big things as we Again, talked on the podcast last week. So if you didn't listen to that podcast audience, hit pause, go back and listen to that one, and now pick up now. Thank you. Join me. <laughs> um, but but in effect, it does three things. It would uh, more energy efficiency in buildings, uh, more aggressive standard for new renewable energy, and a 50% reduction in the use of gasoline in California in cars and trucks by 2030. That is a big issue with the oil industry. And what's fascinating is, again, there is this faction of members of the state assembly, uh, generally moderate or business-aligned Democrats, who are the whole ballgame in Sacramento on this bill. I mean, you've mm-hmm. got business groups, oil groups, environmental groups, all trying to twist arms, water the bill down, protect the bill. Uh, De Leon uh, talked about the bill a little bit this week, but it is, I mean, it is going to be trench warfare on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I think while I agree, anytime you sort of make those like conspiracy theory jumps, this timing was suspicious. It was planned. It's like, OK, you're getting to the weakest part of your pushback of any media coverage. But I'm not going to deny that the oil industry loved the timing of this. I mean, they've been, you know, sending out uh, press releases all week. And again, you know, this gets to not only the pro tem and his push for a lot of these issues, but also Tom Steyer and, and the sort of, you know, desire to paint him in a certain light. Um so, yeah, it was definitely um, it, it is the beginning of a big battle royale, one with money on both sides and a lot of sway on both sides. And, I, you know, I, I think it's definitely um, it's going to be interesting to see, like you said, how, you know, a handful really of Democrats can impact what happens with this bill. I mean, the protem was pretty clear yesterday. He had a news conference with the reporters and he said he's open to tweaks. He's open to amendments. I, I don't think he's going to roll over on the entirety of these um these thresholds, but it's certainly, you know, it, it seems clear, I think, to folks on that side that there's going to need to be some compromise there. And what that looks like and how the governor plays into it, I think is going to be really interesting. Of course, in these in these early moves on the, the bill, I mean, uh, to what you referenced, the, the news conference that uh, De Leon had with uh, reporters at the Capitol on Wednesday, I mean, the other thing that came up is this campaign by the oil industry, not only the private arm twisting at the Capitol, but this public campaign, these um, television ads, these ads that you see online, these targeting of legislative districts that are supposed to raise questions about the bill. We played a snippet of one of these in one of our earlier podcasts. This notion that is like um, uh, a big impact to people's bottom line, the economy, their ability to fill their gas tank, the cost of gas. Um, so here's what the pro tem uh, Kevin DeLeon said about that PR campaign when he was asked about it in the news conference. A lot of the same arguments that were used uh, back in 2006, uh, I think they opened up the file and they dusted off the talking points and they're using the very same talking points. So there's a, a major campaign of, of fear mongering uh, that's very visceral, that's driven at an emotional level. Uh, we're trying to um, put forth, we believe, are solid arguments that will, A, again, grow this economy, and two, put a major dent in our carbon emissions because the health of our communities are at stake. I should point out that the 2006 reference there, um, 
is back to uh, the climate change law signed by Schwarzenegger that year, Assembly Bill 32, and the way that mm-hmm. the oil industry and others approached their opposition to that, De Leon saying it's the same playbook. But, you know, the notion of fear-mongering and the visceral kind of campaign, again, is something that I would argue on the other side, there is this emotional, like, gut reaction campaign from supporters saying we've got to save the planet. We're running out of time. I mean, everybody is playing their big emotional cards on this one. Yeah. Well, and I think there's another interesting point that Anthony's brought up in the past on the podcast, which is like, you know, there's been some sort of personal attacks on DeLeon that, you know, he's not representing his sort of low income Latino working class uh, district very well in this. And there were two polls that came out this week, um, both national and then one in California, you know, by environmental groups, but that showed that this the environment is actually a huge issue for Latinos. And I think that that's a really interesting point and something that um, is going to be again, like sort of a subset of this whole fight that's going to be fascinating to watch because, as you mentioned, this first sort of um, battery of, of this PR campaign, you know, opened with, you know, if if you drive a Tesla, this ad isn't for you. It's really right. trying to get at people's sort of, you know, feelings about economic discrepancies and working class and what does this mean to my bottom line. But I think that there's also a growing portion of the population you know, with, you know, that runs the gamut socioeconomically that's concerned about climate change. And we're in the middle of fire season and we're in the middle of a drought in California. And so what we're seeing is the governor and other folks really hammer those things home, you know, like you said, sort of on the same visceral level that the oil industry is trying to talk about people's pocketbooks. Well, and and we saw that just on Thursday, too. I mean, let's remember that there was new data linking um, California's drought problems to climate change. And the governor jumped right back out on that uh, in, in social media and everywhere else, saying that, you know, it was another clear sign that we've got to do uh, something uh, as soon as we can possibly do and that, you know, no more foot dragging on the issue. Time for, you know, the Republicans and the foot dragging corporations and other deniers, I'm now reading off of his uh, comment, to wake up and take sensible action. And again, I, I think what's going to be really interesting to watch back to Senate Bill 350 and some of these others that are pending is trying to watch the governor's rhetoric and figure out where he is. Since we spent all that time talking about will he be working behind the scenes to to either get the bill as it is or get a bill that he can sign, uh, he's showing no signs of backing off of where his position is. And so, you know, everybody thinks that there probably is a there's probably some way to to avoid the nuclear option fight. But right now, I mean, everybody's in there. They're in their corners, I guess. So speaking of corners, the governor will not be put in one. <laughs> wait, wait, is that a dirty dancing reference? Is that don't put baby in a corner? Don't put Jerry in a corner? <laughs> I was just trying to get a transition here, you know, <laughs> that, and I, I'm with you. OK, topic two on this week's California politics podcast, uh, California's crappy roads and highways. I mean, let's just call it what it is. We all know the governor called this special session of the legislature to find a way to pay for transportation needs and Yes, yes, podcast audience, a special session is procedural. It's not really special. It's all happens at the same time in Sacramento as everything else. Uh, On Wednesday, the governor appeared with a transportation group, transportation advocates at this event in Oakland, and they all say, let's fix the problem. And so the governor said, let's fix the problem. Ah, but here's the problem. (laughs) The coalition is really very much behind new tax dollars, uh, somewhere in the magnitude of about $6 billion a year. And even in California, that's a lot of money. Six billion bucks a year to fund transportation needs. And so I want to play it out for the audience because this is just great. So the governor was asked, 
does this mean that you agree we need a new tax? So his first answer, classic Jerry Brown. <laughs> I appreciate the detail of your question, uh, but my approach to bringing people together is not to prematurely close the door. So I'm for a solution. I'm working on it. And yeah, so then the reporters, another reporter tried again. What about that tax idea? Look, we're, I'm not going to try to say where the revenue is going to come from, how we're going to get it. Okay, so I don't know about the revenue. And now a third time. Third time's the charm. And for the piece de resistance quote, we really got to thank our friend David Siders at the Sacramento Bee for <laughs> teeing up the governor. So he was like, you know, Governor, what is your position? I don't understand your position on new taxes for transportation, to which Governor Brown said. You know, as a brooding omnipresence, I've, I stand above the fray here. But we'll come down, just like we did on the, on the water bond, just like we did on the rainy day fund. Uh, uh, that's kind of interesting to have a press conference and not provide you with what it is you're seeking. But what you're getting here is the opening chapter in a longer novel. Opening chapter in a longer novel. So, what... <laughs> Can I just... Can I just call, you know what, on the governor? I mean, of course there's going to have to be new revenue. It's like, why else is this outside of the budget process? Why else does a special session exist? I mean, I just, I understand he doesn't want to put all his cards on the table about what tax he supports or get into it because he's still, you know, they need Republican votes. But I mean, come on, people. Like, I just, I don't know. Well, I mean, if you look (laughs) at it, though, I mean, I do understand that, that if you're the governor, you've got to figure out a way to... You either figure out a way to make a, a, a rhetorical point, which is a big press conference, or you find an actual negotiating um, way to deal with this. But, you know, the problem with what I just said is that he had a big press conference and he was part of this big press conference. I mean, Republicans yeah. in this in the legislature have said no. They don't want to raise any taxes. And they've said this on the health care issues in that special session and in the transportation issues. Their argument is and again, this is the problem with the way the governor, I think, has positioned the state's finances over the last few years. They say, look at all this windfall of tax revenue we've gotten. We've gotten all this extra cash. Surely there should be enough to solve the road problem. Surely there should be enough for health care uh, financing and all these other things. And, and, and they are playing right out of the governor's playbook in a way because he is the one who has cast what has been going on in the economy as surplus windfall extra money. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, though, what's interesting is that in both of those instances, both this, both special sessions, healthcare and, and transportation, not to say that these aren't urgent needs for the state, but as you you know have mentioned multiple times in your reporting, John, the healthcare tax that they're trying to replace doesn't expire till next summer. Right. So they really technically have a year. The transportation stuff is terrible, but it's not, there's not like some drop deadline. So I do think that 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 does lead some credence to, you know, Republicans negotiating side. Um, On the other hand, they don't need the entire Republican caucus. They need a couple of members. And I think that it's, you know, arguably entirely possible that they could find some sort of situation or, you know, scenario where there are some taxes that maybe some people might be amenable to. Um, But it is, yeah, just from a strategy point of view it's like the governor kind of wants to have his cake and eat it too here which he pretty much acknowledged right he's like i'm gonna have a press conference to talk about this dire need for more money but i'm not going to tell you in any way shape or form (laughs) what kind of way i would support getting more money and it's like okay so why are we all here i mean you know it's it's very classic jerry um i think that 
it's frustrating for reporters. You can tell by some of the questions that were asked. And it's, um, I mean, and it's interesting because they're really depending on the media to get this message out to the public, you know, and sort of arguably make the case or let them make the case to the public that this is such a dire need that maybe they'll turn around and pressure Republicans and mod Dems who aren't, you know, that stoked about raising taxes. It is. But, you know, also what's interesting to me is that, you know, the governor's admission, like in that last uh, bit that we played of like, I get it. It's an odd way to have a press conference when you're not supporting something. But that is that is I feel like we have seen that with uh, Brown a few times. Like I remember one time I asked him a question about this issue of local government makes better decisions than state government. And yet he had supported this new limit, which we heard some stuff about this week on uh, budget reserves for school districts. And he said, well, yeah. there's an exception to every rule, and that's the exception. And it's like, you know, these things, and I, you know, I hate to invoke the word Teflon, because in politics, Teflon goes back to Reagan. You know, they called him the Teflon president. But in some ways, these things don't stick to Brown. And, and they, don't, they don't hinder his ability to do what he wants to do out of the job. I mean, in, in the same way that Schwarzenegger was a unique governor, Brown is a very unique governor. These things just, you know, the inconsistencies don't bother him and they don't seem to be a negative with his opinion or the way Californians see him in their opinion. So. Agreed. <laughs> I, I think I think to me, you know, one other thing on this transportation thing, curious what you think here. I, I really have a hard time seeing this getting solved before everybody goes home because it's a big dollar amount. It's a big issue. There are all of these secondary issues involved transit versus roads, um, uh, road uh, mileage charging by how much you drive instead of the tax on gas consumption, and on and on. And then, as I said, the $6 billion, $5 billion, $7 billion. There are a lot of those numbers out there. I have a hard time seeing it getting done, which then makes me wonder whether this is another issue that we have to see in 2016 in some way, shape, or form. I mean, these groups do have money to file something to put it on the ballot if they wanted to do it. And I think about some of the transportation funding we've done over the last few years, bond measure in 2006, though that was put on the ballot by the legislature, but bond measure the voters had to approve, or uh, money for transportation back in the early 2000s, the Prop 42 transportation money. All of these things seem to have to go around the legislative process because they were just, I don't know, too big, too complex. I, I feel like this could be another one of those cases. Right. But that's the interesting thing. This was supposed to be that opportunity, right? Like the, this was the special session. This was taking it out of the budget discussion. I feel like the, right. the, the challenge for Democrats is, is if you push it till next year, then you're kind of back at square one because Republicans sort of have won the battle. And then let's make it part of the normal budget talk. Um, and again, like even though Democrats can run the table on the budget, they still need Republican votes in order to get revenues, i.e. taxes passed. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, if there's one thing I've learned in politics is to never make too uh, certain of a projection <laughs> in any of this stuff. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's entirely possible that maybe something happens, but they don't, you know, fix everything, which is – I think the idea that they could sort of fix what's been, you know, a decade or more in coming in terms of the lack of investment in our roads and bridges and – all of that is is unlikely. And, you know, we didn't get to talk about this in depth last week, but, you know, there is uh, people in the Democratic caucus are pushing other issues into this, right? On, on the healthcare side, there's a lot of stuff that we're going to discuss. But 
even in this, we've seen uh, Supervisor David Chu from San Francisco and a couple of uh, L.A. Democrats really want transit to be part of this transportation discussion. So right. everybody wants something. And I just yeah, I, I don't see that they're going to sort of find a silver bullet that will mollify uh, two thirds of the legislature in the next two and a half weeks, three weeks. But, you know, a mollifying silver bullet. I will leave that image as we move forward. I've also gotten uh, stoked in here. I'm just, you know, trying to get my SoCal roots in there. <laughs> All right, let's pause for this week's um, California Politics Podcast Side Dish. It's our weekly dose of little something small, some something that caught our eye, a little small morsel from the week's news. Uh, Marisa Lagos, who you can find on Twitter at M Lagos, uh, you get to go first. Side Dish. Yeah, so this is what I was just alluding to, which is a, an issue that has been um, inserted into the special session that does not have to do with Medi-Cal funding, which is tobacco, one of the issues that's been inserted to the special session. Um, so we've seen six bills introduced on tobacco. They all cleared a Senate committee yesterday, which isn't surprising because the Senate had actually already approved some of the most controversial measures in this batch, which includes um, one that would raise the smoking age to 21, another that would uh, consider electronic or e-cigarettes as tobacco products, and allow like sting operations to catch these vendors selling them to minors. Um, that one, well, both of them really, but really the e-cigarette one was the subject of a very intense assembly hearing earlier this summer in which uh, author Mark Leno got rebuffed by governmental organization chair Adam Gray. Um, so this is just another run at these. It's going to kind of be fascinating. Again, you know, the, the assembly is really where the rubber meets the road for most of these issues this time around. They That's where the mod Dems are. That's where it seems like the challenge is going to be for the more liberal wing of the party to get a lot of these policies through. Um, so, yeah, so it'll be fascinating. And, and you can bet that all of these issues, if they don't get dealt with in the special session, will be back on the docket in January. Well, and especially if you talk about tobacco taxes, that could actually be on the docket in November <laughs> right. for the voters. Pretty much but, everything yeah, we're talking about watch. could be on before voters. <laughs> so get ready. Speaking of the voters and what they get or don't get to do, my side dish this week, and you can find me on Twitter at John Myers, my whole name. Uh, mine is a very small thing. It was this uh, little bit of analysis that came out on Thursday from uh, Google and another tech company about the way money was spent on congressional campaigns in the United States. And their premise was um, that most of the money in television ads is wasted money because uh, the audience of television stations around the country, only a portion of that audience, is actually in the congressional district where the race is playing out and where the people can vote. And so their, their uh, calculation was that a full 75 percent of the dollars spent on congressional campaign ads in 2014 was wasted because it was hitting people who lived in the television market but weren't in the congressional district and couldn't um, couldn't vote. And so they picked two California races because these were really the two big spenders in 2014. Uh, California 7, the 7th congressional district outside of Sacramento, and California 52, the district uh, around San Diego. So in the 7th Congressional District, which was number four on their national top 10 of wasted dollars, they projected 82% of the dollars were wasted. Now, I can understand that as a former TV guy, so let me break it down. That race was between Ami Barra, who won, the incumbent Democrat, and Doug Osey, the Republican challenger. The Sacramento television market, where I used to work, is uh, Sacramento, Stockton, and Modesto. So it's really three counties, and it actually goes really from Modesto all the way up to South Lake Tahoe. But the congressional district that was showing where all the television ads were playing 
is only in Sacramento County. So you were hitting all of these voters, spending all this money to hit people in Modesto and Stockton and Lodi and here and there. And it wasn't there weren't people who could actually vote in that race. And the same in San Diego, which is a fairly large television market. But the 52nd district is closer into San Diego. So Scott Peters, the incumbent, beat uh, Republican Carl DeMaio down there. They argue that 76 percent of the money spent there was wasted because it wasn't hitting people who could actually vote in the race. I found it interesting on a couple of notes. One, because there's so much money in these television ads. I mean, television ads are still the way people are reaching voters, though I'm sure, Marisa, you've heard this, too, from political consultants. More and more people are starting to second guess the use of that money, especially when you look at millennials and other people who don't watch television as much. But the other part, too, of course, is I couldn't help but notice in the piece I wrote for our website that uh, Google and the tech company and all the people in the tech sector would love to have more of the dollars in the digital atmosphere and not the broadcast atmosphere. So certainly if you show a report that shows that money's wasted, maybe the message is come spend it with us. But nonetheless, this is something that people in politics have seen before. You have to spend really big to have a television buy, even if you're only trying to hit a little slice of the people. We even saw that. The other anecdote I'm very mindful of was an assembly race yeah. in the East Bay, east of San Francisco. I was going to bring that up, yeah. Right, where I believe they bought an ad during the World Series, and they had to spend all this money, but the only people that the political ad really applied to was a legislative district in the East Bay. Yeah, I mean, I saw a ton of Steve Glazer ads during that, that right. face-off. that's the race. So, yeah, and I, I live in San Francisco, and way the heck out there, you know, comparatively when you think about how many districts are between here and there. So, yeah, I mean, this only looked at Congress. If you added up all those other smaller races, it would be an even bigger number. Yeah. So, you know, food for thought. Everybody can figure out what they would do with the money if the money wasn't spent there. The happiest people, I can tell you, are the political consultants who get a fee for placing those television ads and because I used to work for one, the television stations, because they do make a lot of money in those ads, and I bet we'll see some again in 2016. Okay, so our third topic on this week's California Politics Podcast, well, I guess the fun has officially begun in the home stretch of the California legislature for 2015. All members vote or desire to vote. All members vote or desire to vote. All members vote. So the legislature returned this week. Uh, They have four weeks, about a month, of pushing bills to the governor's desk or bills that go down to defeat. We've talked about some of those, but um, we wanted to focus on a couple in particular here that had some interesting news to them uh, this week. Um, Let's talk first, if you would, Marisa, about the bill that came back that we alluded to, you know, a national issue and a bill that looked like it was gone and now uh, a new effort. Yeah. So on Tuesday, a group of Democrats revived this bill that would let doctors in California prescribe lethal medication to terminate ill patients. Um, It's, uh, you know, it's been very controversial. I think there's only two states that allow this kind of uh, what's known as assisted suicide for folks who are already very ill. Um, And it stalled in the Assembly Health Committee earlier this summer over objections of mostly Latino Democrats. You know, the Catholic Church has been a very vocal opponent. There's also been concern from people that don't agree with this idea that it could sort of be used to coerce people of color and, and, and who are low income into, you know, ending their loved ones' lives for reasons of, of money and other things. Um But on Tuesday, this uh, group of Democrats took another run at it. They introduced it as part of the special health section, which is, you know, sort of, you know, 
politically genius, I suppose, in a way, because they're making an end run around some of the same Democrats who voted it down in the Assembly Health Committee last uh, in June, July. So what's fascinating about this is, you know, we could see this get to the floor for a vote, unlike, you know, before in the Assembly. But then... um, a spokeswoman for Governor Jerry Brown said this week that this was not the right place for the legislation. She didn't say whether or not the governor would veto it if it makes it through the legislature, but that was sort of a hint that this may not be um, sort of welcome, you know, uh, the, the governor's office may not give it a warm welcome. Um, so it's going to be interesting. You know, it's a very emotional issue. It's something people feel very strongly about on both sides. And there's a lot of anger on the side of opponents that the that the supporters of it would use the special session to push it. Um, what the supporters say is, you know, people are dying and they don't have time to wait, essentially. So very visceral. It's a fascinating thing to me um, because, yeah, I mean, right. It, it, it's a very clever procedural way to get the issue back out there, especially for people who say we can't wait. But but right, that comment from the governor's office, um, because I think one of the great unknowns about this is, is if it was going to land on the governor's desk, if if the supporters are successful to get yeah. this legal way, medically assisted suicide to the governor's desk, what would he do? I mean, Jerry Brown has a, a long history of... Um, the world of spirituality, of life, of death. I mean, his Jesuit background, his, uh, I mean, he just has a million different approaches to things yeah. that are on these larger life issues. And it's hard to know which one of those he would come down on. And so to me, this notion that they come out and say it is not germane, it's not it's not appropriate for the special session on health care, almost is like a way to say, I would never. It's almost like the courts where they don't actually rule on the merits right. of a of a case. They say that the case doesn't have standing. It's almost like a technicality way that the governor could say, "I want you to bring it back the right way before I, I know. consider." No, and I think it's a little bit of a of an insight into where Brown stands because you could follow that through and say, "Well, maybe they know that unless they change, you know, the regular committee makeups, this won't ever make it to the governor." And maybe that's what he wants. Maybe he doesn't want to have to make this call. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it, it was interesting. It's very rare that the governor will come out with any sort of even comment about a bill. I mean, he didn't obviously say where he stands on it, but even just letting a spokesperson make that statement was was telling and sort of interesting. Um, but, you know, again, like and, it, and it'll also just be interesting to see how it does fare if it makes it to the assembly floor, because. Like, you know, as we've mentioned, this really split the Latino caucus. I mean, the head of that caucus, um, Luis Alejo, was actually at the press conference this week where they announced the its revival and really sort of speaking to a lot of these concerns that have been raised both on the religious side and on the sort of socioeconomic side. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it's just it, it's a fascinating one to watch. And I think it's going to be really interesting to watch the roll call on that vote wherever it makes it. I think so, too. And and. So the other bill we were going to highlight um, really to me is like the, the the poking a political stick in someone's eye. So we're 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 going from much larger um, uh, thoughts about life to something that's a little more just kind of base good old politics. Um, but it was also something that was really important to people. It was about a fast action. So the, uh, last week there were news stories uh, about there are a few thousand high school students in California who have not been able to get their diplomas because they haven't passed the state's high school exit exam, 
And the very last offering of that exam, which was supposed to be this summer, was canceled by state education officials. Now, why do they cancel it? Because they said it doesn't align with the state's new Common Core standards and they wanted to rework it. But these kids were caught in a lurch. And I, there was some great reporting. I hats off to uh, folks in San Francisco that led the discussion that pointed it out with some kids in the city. Um, so the legislature said, we've got to act. And so they come back to Sacramento this week. And on Thursday, the assembly passed an urgency bill to allow these kids to legally get their diplomas. And I think we're going to see action in the state Senate soon. So that's all well and fine. And that's really what, what it's about is, is these kids who were kind of unintended consequences caught in the lurch between this issue about the high school exit exam. But not without good old politics uh, and some some easy shots, uh, admittedly, taken by lawmakers uh, on the floor in the assembly, especially Republicans, at the State Department of Education, because it is led by a Democrat, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tom Torlakson. So Republicans took their shots, led by the leader of the assembly, Republicans, in her comments, uh, Kristen Olson. And uh, here's Olson's comments. Common Core, the implementation of Common Core, was not a surprise. This has been something we've been working on for years. We knew it was coming, and there is no logical reason we couldn't have been prepared with a new exit exam that was closely aligned with the Common Core curriculum. Well, there's so many, I mean... There's so much debate over Common Core. Like you said, Torlakson is a lightning rod for Republicans because he's been very aligned with um, the teachers union in the past. Um, and it's just so easy. I mean, there's these poor kids stranded. It it really was one of those stories that you're just scratching your head. Like, how could bureaucrats let this happen at all? Well, and, and I mean, you know, Democrats in the legislature uh, tried very hard to say we completely agree. It was almost like a... Um, this is really a bad uh, a bad way to go. But, you know, there's the saying of throwing someone under the bus. And if it was a school bus, in this case, it was Tom Torlakson. I mean, everybody was saying the Department of Education are the ones who screwed this up. It's it, they're the ones, although, you know, Olson and other Republicans said, hey, we bear some blame here, too. I mean, the bottom line is everybody agrees this is going to get fixed. I mean, it it sailed through the assembly uh, with an almost unanimous vote. Uh, I bet it's going to be on the governor's desk soon because it's an urgency measure, which means it'll get fixed and the kids will get their diplomas and everybody will be happy. But right, it goes back to this fundamental question of like, you know, how does the process of government work? And when when you can, and you know, and I think this is kind of an interesting bookend for our episode because we started about the power of the press sometimes and people saying we, you know, they don't like when the press makes a judgment on X, Y, and Z. But had it not been for the news reports about these kids in the lurch, Nothing would have happened here. It's not like we're patting ourselves on the backs, folks. Don't worry. Shout out to my former colleague, Jill Tucker, who did some really good work on this at The Chronicle. I mean, you know, and really put a human face on what these kids were like and and who how hard they worked and just like what a just how shocking it would be to, to be planning on starting college in a few weeks and then told, sorry, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, there were so many interesting cases and it is a small number of kids. But again, Um, I just take it that like when something is presented, sometimes, you know, the wheels of government or this part of government, that part of Sacramento, not the, I guess, the state agency. Sometimes those wheels move a little bit faster, but not without some people jabbing people in the ribs (laughs) there just just a little bit for fun. Right. Oh, geez. At least they at least they reacted quickly. (laughs) <laughs> At least. Let's give them that. A round of applause for, for helping the kids out um, who needed it. Um, well, with that, 
we'll keep watching. I mean, I think the next few weeks are going to be really interesting. Um, as we said last week, hundreds of bills, a lot of good topics, um, and I can't wait for the brooding uh, omnipresence of the governor to reemerge, as he calls himself. Brooding. I didn't know he brooded, but that's another podcast. We should ask the first lady. Oh, <laughs> hey, open invitation, <laughs> Ann Gust Brown. Come on the podcast. You could be the real first guest we've actually ever had on the podcast. <laughs> you think that you think that's going to work? Probably not. I, I mean, I I would love it, but I I'm not holding my breath. We've got better luck to get the dog Sutter than we do uh, <laughs> anybody else. In which case, there'd be a lot of barking and a lot of like you know rolling on the floor. Um, that's that's enough. That's not an. It's not the uh, first dog podcast. Um, that's Marisa Lagos from KQED News. I'm John Myers from KQED. As always, uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.